Welcome to the MedFaber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. MetFaber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, friends, awesome show today. Our guest is a portfolio manager at Toroso Investments, where he runs two tactical risk-on, risk-off strategies. He's also the publisher of the Lead Lag Report. In today's episode, we're talking about how to use indicators for tactical allocations. Our guest explains how he came to focus on the risk management early in his career and has kept that mentality ever since. He walks us through how he used utility sector as an indicator for when volatility is going to spike, which worked well in 2020, helping him return over 70% in this strategy. Then he takes us through his award-winning paper on lumber and gold, two seemingly uncorrelated commodities that actually work well together to serve as a strong indicator for inflationary or deflationary conditions. As we wind down, he explains how often he assesses these signals and what they're showing right now in 2021. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal-by-deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10east.co. Please enjoy this episode with Toroso Investments, Michael Guyad. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Where in the world do we find you in quarantine in 2021? I'm above ground in my basement in Queens, New York. What's the vibe there right now? I wish I could tell you. I'm so busy working. I've largely been on the road quite a bit and, and got very used to sort of being a road warrior. And now I'm just a road warrior at home. So nothing kind of really changed that much for me when we kind of got stuck here, other than I really just don't go out. But otherwise, it's you know, kind of business as usual for me. Well, you get to do weekly happy hours. One of my favorite things to tune into the Get Tank Thursdays. Are those still happening in 2021? We got some really good traction on it. So we've had a number of big name guests. Of course, you were among those big name guests earlier in the year. Now we're averaging, I want to say, 30,000, 40,000 views per live stream when we go out there. So it's a fun experience. One thing is, you know, being interviewed, another thing is interviewing somebody else. You almost have to have a very different mindset, I think, when you're conducting the interview forced into the position to some extent to try to keep the name out there as COVID was happening. And so far, so good. I mean, we're rocking and rolling at Toroso with that. You guys do kind of a fun format, which is more of a communal happy hour, less than like a straight interview style, which is fun because it's super casual. There's been some fun guests. Who've been some of your favorites? I'd be remiss if I didn't say you, of course, certainly in the beginning. We've had a lot of great guests. We've had Lynn Alden, who has a tremendous following on social media. Jim Bianco, we've had Mike Novogratz, a bunch of more lesser known uh, analysts, but also very intriguing. Had quite a bit of focus on Bitcoin because it's been so hot, which I'm sure we'll talk about. We're trying to really kind of branch out beyond just finance too, right? So we've had Jordan Burroughs, number one wrestler, five-time gold Olympic medal winner. I think it's good to do more than just finance when you're talking about business and investing, because I think we kind of get blindsided by our own little world. But the reality is most people outside of our industry think differently about how they manage money. And it's interesting to hear that perspective. We often talk about it where we say it's very similar to politics, where 90% of the people, there's some sort of views, but we spend all of our time discussing like the final 10 or 1%. 
because that's what everyone disagrees about. And you have this distance from the normal conversation because, you know, it sounds like a lot of us are brawling over these things that really happen at kind of the periphery. They're worth talking about and they matter, of course. So today is going to be a lot of fun because you and I are kind of brothers from a different mother. We share a lot of similar views, I think. So I'm going to have to play a little more devil's advocate and push you on some areas that I probably agree with you on, but we'll just needle you a bit. You've written a lot of papers. When did the lead lag report start? The Lead Lag Report, which is this premium research service, launched about a year and a half ago or so. I've been very fortunate. I got to tell you, I've got around something like 1,200 paying subscribers, and many of them are advisors, high net worth investors that recognize that if you want to kill it in the stock market, you have to not get killed. In other words, the focus is primarily around risk off, conditions that favor tail events. And it's not one of those research pieces that kind of focuses on the next hot investment theme or stock. It's really much more about that downside risk off potential. So I'm very proud about that. And the lead lag report is really kind of an offshoot of these five different white papers that I've put out over the years that won different awards since 2014, two from the Chartered Market Technicians Association, the Dow Award, and three from the National Association of Axe Investment Managers name. And all the papers kind of focus on that very point that if you want to really make substantial wealth over time, you have to focus less on FOMO and more about that downside risk. So let's talk about your philosophy and take us back to kind of the origin story about how you started to think about markets this way. I think it's a very thoughtful way to think about markets, particularly for someone on the younger side. Normally, when we have guests on that are talking about risk and position sizing, it's the people that have been through a lot of fair markets and have the scars to prove it. They've been taken out to the woodshed and you see a lot of the younger crowd in particular have never been through it. What was sort of the origin story about how you started to build this philosophy in markets and walk us through it, your general framework? I think oftentimes we are defined not by our successes, but by our failures often. A little bit of kind of quick background. So I kind of grew up in the industry. So my father had worked for Bob Farrell in the late 1980s, who was a sort of legendary market technician. Farrell's 10 rules is sort of a well-known list of rules when it comes to markets. And he left Merrill, started his own investment firm, got to about a billion dollars in assets, sold out, started a hedge fund. Every day I would see him talking about markets, and he was always very focused on risk and downside. He wrote two books, one about the 87 crash and one about intermarket analysis and investing, where the focus was really more around risk management. And I think actually a lot of technicians like to focus more on downside than upside. I'm a big fan of the Chartered Market Technicians Association. And one of the stats that I'm always thrown at by the heads there is that the number of people taking CMT designation tests spikes after major drawdowns because people view technical analysis as a means of trying to manage risk. So a lot of it was sort of around the foundations my father helped me grow up with. So what really did it for me was when I launched Hedge Fund in 2007, right before Lehman and was really kind of just trying to get my feet wet on shorting and doing stat arp type strategies. Lehman happened. My father passed. I had all kinds of uncertainties around my future. And I started getting very into the works of Nassim Taleb, fooled by randomness, the black swan. And one of the lines that really struck out to me that Taleb has put out there is this idea that history doesn't crawl, it jumps. Things are defined by major events, and those major events tend to be fairly negative events historically. Because I kind of went through the pain and difficulty and because I kind of grew up with my father being so focused on risk management, it became a very major component of why I think about the markets the way that I think about markets. The Bob Farrell, I think, for the younger crowd listening to this that is not familiar with who he is, spend a little time Googling his 10 rules for investing, which we'll add a, a link to the show note. I don't know if I disagree with any of them. He was at Merrill. But my favorite, markets tend to return to the mean over time. <laughs> well, the problem with that, of course, is that, as you know, that it's hard to know what the mean is because the mean is always moving. It's funny, I used to, when I was presenting, I spent years on the road every week presenting at CFA chapters. And I'd always talk about mean aversion and say to the audience at the CFA chapters, mean aversion is the only thing you can really count on in markets. And it's also a concept that's as old as the Bible. He who is first shall be last and last first is mean aversion. It's funny because something's never changed. But of course, as I noted, right, it's hard to know exactly where that mean is. I'm going to read these real quick just because they're so good. So markets return the mean. Two is excesses in one direction will lead to an opposite excess in the other direction. I think we're seeing a little bit of that now. Three, there's no new eras. Excesses are never permanent. Exponentially rising or falling markets usually go further than you think. 
but this is the interesting part, but they don't correct by going sideways. The public buys the most at the top and least at the bottom. Fear and greed are stronger than long-term resolve. Seven, markets are strongest when they're broad and weakest when they're narrow. Bear markets have three stages, sharp down, reflexive rebound, and drawn out fundamental. When all the experts and forecasts agree, something else is going to happen. And bull markets are more fun than bear markets. I love a good bubble. That's a great one. We could probably spend an hour on those 10 tenants, but want to talk a little bit about your research because there's a lot. So when did you start to put pen to paper? You launched your first public fund when? Was the end of 2012. And then the first paper on utilities that won the 2014 Dow Award was written in 2013 and won the award. It was actually the fund first and then the papers afterwards kind of documenting the ingredients that go into the ATAC rotation fund. And the reason that paper focused on the utility sector is it relates to, I think it was page 312 of my father's book, Intermarket Analysis and Investing. That one page has a section my father wrote, the heading of which is utilities lead stocks. And while he didn't necessarily do it from a quantitative perspective, it just kind of stuck out to me. Like, why would utilities lead stocks? And I started doing all kinds of tests and it led to a, a broader sort of um, focus around interest rate sensitive groups as leading indicators to volatility. Let's walk through the paper. Tell me a little bit what the thesis is. When you go back to the late 1920s, historically, when the utilities sector, the most boring sector of the stock market, when utilities are outperforming the broader stock market on a very short-term basis, generally you tend to see stock market volatility rise on average afterwards. So in other words, utilities typically move first, then you tend to have higher risk conditions. One of the stats in the paper shows that in the top 1% of VIX spikes, those real collapses in equities, like what we saw earlier last year with the COVID crash, that in 75% of those top VIX spikes, utilities are already leading before the VIX spike takes place. And it's not some random correlation. The causation is around interest rates. Utilities are the most bond-like sector of the stock market. Their movement because of that makes it a very important signal in terms of what it suggests about the demand for money. It's not just sort of from a quantitative perspective. A lot of legendary technicians, whether it's John Murphy, Martin Pring, they've always noted that the Dow utilities would tend to sort of move in advance of major economic troughs and peaks. So when you actually quantitatively test it, it ends up being that utilities move in advance of higher volatility conditions. It's not one of those things where if utilities are leading for a prolonged period of time, it tells you anything about the stock market. Markets arguably are largely efficient longer term. It's only in the very short term where there's some predictive power in terms of that utilities movement. So the paper really documented that going back to the 20s, looking at rolling periods. Actually, that paper came out in 2014, and I actually just did an update for the last five, six years on SSRN.com, which I know your paper is on as well. For anybody that's kind of curious to see the research even applied to COVID in terms of the way the decline occurred. Talk to me about what's the practical takeaways for that strategy. And then also you can walk me through how it's played out in the fund, particularly with this year. The way to view it, and I think this is an important way to frame any study on markets. I always tell people, I don't know the exact mile marker that I might crash my car, but I do know the conditions that favor the accident. I know when it's raining to slow down, play risk off, when it's sunny to speed up, play risk on. And utilities are just telling you the weather. And by the way, the other reason why utilities are so important, aside from the bond-like characteristics is, from a fundamental perspective, most of the earnings for utility companies are not driven by revenue. It's really by changes in cost of capital, interest rates, because they're highly levered entities. From a strategy perspective, it's interesting to sort of rotate around utilities and the market, which is how the back test in that paper was constructed. The reason buy and hold fails is because nobody tends to hold. I say buy and hold fails for the investor, not in terms of looking at a chart, because people end up trading at the wrong time and then they're not sticking to a buy and hold strategy. They don't stick to a buy and hold strategy because when drawdowns occur, they react emotionally. To the extent that utilities are telling you in advance that you might have a potential drawdown, it matters because one, you can at least mentally prepare for it. Two, you might actually be able to act on it. All right. Now, the ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund had its real war story in 2020. The ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund uses utilities as one of the risk-on, risk-off triggers and went risk-off all into treasuries in mid-January. Prior to the COVID collapse, stayed in treasuries throughout the entire decline. 
made money as stocks were going down, and then utilities flipped going risk on, meaning they were underperforming the market on a short-term basis at the very end of March, pretty much almost right after the low. So mathematically, you can see how you can have a very strong year. The fund closed up 72%, not because it was in any individual tech name, but because if you avoid a big decline and utilities warned of it, and then you rotate back at lower levels with more capital to compound off of, that's how pathwise you can have a very strong year. To be clear, you said 72, not 7.2. When you're risk on, what is the fund investing in? And when you're risk off, what are you investing in? In the media, when the market's up, they say risk on. The market's down, they say risk off. I don't view risk on, risk off in terms of direction. You could have a very big down day, and I could argue that the intermarket trends internally in the market are actually saying it's a risk on day, despite the direction. You have to kind of think about it more in terms of risk on, risk off. Again, goes back to conditions that favor the accident, using the driving analogy. The 72% came from avoiding the accident from COVID, came from going risk on afterwards. What's interesting about using utilities as a signal, and really anything that kind of gets ahead of big declines, is that they're often wrong. There are plenty of times historically where utilities are, on a short-term basis, outperforming the broader stock market, risk off. And yet the market doesn't go down and volatility doesn't increase. So if you're using a rotational approach and you're in the market or utilities in the case of the paper, and you're wrong being in utilities, yeah, you're still going to make money, but you're going to be underperforming on the upside. More often than not, you will be underperforming with a rotational approach that's doing risk on, risk off, because the reality is you're going to get signals wrong along the way. And it's a false positive, right, in terms of playing defense. It's the magnitude of getting it right that matters the most. Now, when the mutual fund goes risk on, unlike in the paper where it's just the market, there's this rotational element where when it's risk on, it can be either large caps, small caps, or emerging markets. Some people say that's kind of strange. Why would you limit your opportunity set to just three areas when you're risk on? And why choose those three? Historically, when you're risk on and the dollar is strong, small caps have the most relative momentum. This most recent period is a little bit of an anomaly from that perspective. Historically, when your risk on the dollar is weak, emerging markets benefit the most. When I launched the fund at the end of 2012, I basically launched it in the worst of all worlds. Because here comes a risk on, risk off strategy, the ATAC rotation fund. Here comes QE3. Pure risk on, a lot of false signals. You're playing defense. Utilities are more a momentum play than a defensive signal because of QE3 and yield suppression from the Fed. A lot of false signals. So you're getting whipsawed around the risk on, risk off. And then on top of that, up until Recently, we have been in a cycle dominated by just large cap US, which means that any kind of rotations within the risk on to what looks like starting momentum in small caps never sticks, especially so in emerging markets. So I kind of got hit with the worst of all worlds. And I think, by the way, you know, that's an underappreciated aspect of strategies and anything that's active. You still need a longer term, larger cycle that favors your opportunity set with which you're executing on whatever signal you're following. If you have an environment of just pure passive large cap, that's hard for anybody that's actively rotating to beat because that's the only game in town. If you have an environment where small caps, emerging markets, any kind of developed international and some volatility kicks in, at least you have a chance. But you can't chase the cycle. The cycle has to come to you. So you have to kind of keep on going through these false signals along the way. And that's really hard for investors to do. Do you ever think, as someone who is systematic, what concerns you about this sort of idea in the future? Is the biggest risk sort of the sideways, back and forth, flipping? Is it the possibility that utilities could morph into something that looks very different in a future of climate change and clean energy than it has in a sort of carbon-based past? Anything that you think about or keeps you up at night in regards to this particular strategy? Three, four years ago, I was presenting at the CFA Portland chapter. And somebody in the audience asked the question, so what happens if the utility sector disappears? And the audience laughed. And I said, well, wait a minute, that's actually not that far-fetched. I can easily envision a scenario where it's all decentralized energy, it's all solar panels, and the grid does no longer need it. So my response to that is, first of all, that will take time in general. But it's one of those things where if it's working now, kind of like the definition of profanity, I'll know when I hear it. I'll know when it's broken, when some of these longer term changes are in effect and you start seeing the behavior of utilities dynamically changing relative to the market. We are, I think, very far away from that still. So that is a concern though, right? That arguably that dynamic changes. 
I just don't think it's something to worry about very short term. Let's move papers. Which one do you want to talk about next? Lumber? So of all the presentations I had done on the road, the one that won the 2015 Founders Award, Lumber Worth Its Weight in Gold, always got the most intrigue because it's kind of a strange idea. Why would two seemingly unrelated commodities tell you anything about risk in the stock market? And it becomes clear when you start thinking it through in terms of the link being housing. So we know that, at least in the United States, housing is a leading indicator of the economy. And most people's wealth is in their homes. The average home has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. So it stands to reason that as lumber behaves, there's all kinds of interesting ripple effects as far as what that movement tells you about future housing activity, construction, wealth creation, credit creation, so on and so forth. Gold, on the other hand, is more of a safe haven commodity. I don't know how many times maybe you've heard, as I have, people say, well, you know, gold's going up because of inflation. Gold is going up because of deflation. Gold is going up because the trend's higher. Gold's going up because stocks are going up. And nobody really knows sort of why gold does what it does. Lawrence did a white paper that showed that when you compare gold's movement against most macroeconomic variables, it doesn't really correlate to anything. What gold does correlate to, however, is volatility in the stock market, meaning that you tend to see that for a moment in time, flight to safety movement in the yellow metal when stocks act a little crazy. So you compare lumber, which is perhaps the most cyclical commodity you can imagine because of the link to housing to gold, which is non-cyclical, more of a safe haven commodity. And it turns out it tells you a lot about stock market volatility going forward. And one of the really interesting things about that paper is in every single major decline, lumber to gold weakened, signaling risk off before it was too late. Prior to the 1987 crash, a month before lumber to gold underperformed. Prior to the 1990 housing recession, about two weeks before, you still got a signal, S&P corrected. 2000, 2001, 2002, you saw immediate VIX spikes afterwards. Tech wreck, what would that have to do with lumber to gold? But unequivocally, it warned you. Even 2008, two weeks before Lehman, lumber to gold warned risk off in advance. You could have avoided the entire bulk of the great financial crisis. 2011, same deal just before the euro crisis. Everyone concerned about the euro existing or not. You know, lumber to gold weakened in advance. Even in 2020, it was mid-February. It's documented in the lead lag report. The lumber to gold ratio turned and flipped before the real bulk of the decline happened. It's a really kind of fascinating relationship to track. Now, kind of going back to what you were saying before, what would concern me about that signal? Well, if the causation breaks, meaning let's say you have, which is not impossible, a situation where there's some new polymer or some kind of new cement compound or something that now everybody's homes are built out of that breaks the relationship of lumber to housing. But it is a remarkably powerful indicator, and one that I think nobody really focuses on, we are starting to, at Toroso, more formally, because we launched an ETF, RORO, R-O-R-O, the ATAC US rotation ETF, which tracks that lumber to gold signal, goes risk on when lumber is outperforming gold, risk off when gold outperforms lumber, equities or treasuries, respectively. And it's interesting, too, with everything that's happened with this migration in terms of people moving away from steel cities to housing, suburbs, that seems to be that commodity is going to be even more interesting to watch than ever before. It's funny when you talk about that, I smile always because I have a niece named Roro and she's a handful. Every time I think about that fund or my niece, the other pops up. So tell me about the fund a little bit. How does it position? Does it do similar position sizing as the mutual fund? How are they different? How are they similar? What's the story? So they're both risk on risk off strategies, which need some degree of volatility in the stock market to stand out. The mutual fund uses utilities and treasuries as the risk-on, risk-off trigger and can be large, small, or emerging markets. Emerging markets have been a tremendous headwind for that strategy because, again, no sort of persistent momentum there. The ETF uses lumber to gold, so different risk trigger, and is only U.S. Risk-on, small caps, large growth, risk-off treasuries. Typically, when you're in a real risk-off period, all of the signals align, meaning you will see utility-strong risk-off ATAC rotation mutual fund. Long-duration treasuries outperform intermediate, risk-off ATAC rotation mutual fund. Lumber to gold week, risk-off RORO ETF. Typically, in the extremes, everything kind of correlates in the same way. It's the in-between where there's a lot of differences. So they're actually not really as strategies correlated that highly to each other over time. But again, they both need downside. If you have an approach that thrives on down capture, you need to be in a cycle where there's downside to capture. That's a common theme across all of the white papers, all the research and the actual funds that we're running. 
Downside? What are you talking about? There's no downside anymore, Michael. There's only upside. We're right in the early days of 2021. Any guidance on how these guys are positioned? Update us on how often these guys trade. Because when you talk about models like this, some people, it could be trading once a year. Some people, it's like once a week. Talk about the sort of the activity on these and then kind of how they've been positioned the last few months. I'm glad you say that because I always kind of smile whenever I see on financial media people talking about active versus passive and their active is overweighting some stock by 50 basis points. That's not active. You talk about active, both funds have turnover north of a thousand percent. So you're talking about extreme number of rotations and you're talking about the entire portfolio, risk on all in equities, risk off all in treasuries. I liken that to slowing down entering the storm. I always used to make this point that whenever you drive, you're inherently making a prediction. When you're slowing down entering a storm, you're predicting that you're going to crash. Why else would you be slowing down while you're driving? You're going to be wrong a lot. Your turnover, as they call it, turnover, is going to be wrong a lot. You're going to keep on having these kind of false signals, playing defense, slowing down while driving. And with hindsight, you can always get to your destination faster. If you went full speed ahead, even when it's hailing outside, you'll probably get to your destination just fine. The problem is that one time turnover is high because you don't know which signal is the one that's going to be the one that works, except with hindsight. So you have to keep on playing them as they come out. And because the nature of the anomaly is so short term, you have to really be very active. So it rotates using ETFs for that reason, because ETFs allow for the ability to get in and out very quickly at a very low cost. And so that's looking at like once a week. So every single week, both the ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund and the ATAC US Rotation ETF RORO reevaluate the signals. That doesn't mean that every single week it switches, but every single week there's a potential change. Some people say, well, why don't you do a daily interval? You've done a lot of these tests yourself. You have to kind of find the right balance from a quantitative perspective in terms of frequency and noise, meaning that if you are daily in your rotational approach, you're going to get many more signals, many more false positives and you could be offsized more often. If you're quarterly, I would argue you can largely be late to what could be a high volatility period. And I think actually a lot of managed futures strategies got stuck in that with COVID and how quickly the decline in advance came back. They went risk off pretty much after the decline because of the way the rebalance interval took place. So you have to find the right balance between how much you want to potentially use your signal and where the noise might be. From the tests that I've done, weekly sort of the best interval to look at. Monthly is a little bit too lagged. Quarterly is definitely lagged using this approach. And daily is just way too noisy. It seems like having these conversations with investors and friends, almost always, there's sort of infinite permutations. And eventually you have to settle on something, either something that fits your personality or just fits where it's trying to fit in. I love the idea you alluded to about these type of funds because the concentration and just how different they are because so many people, the entire history of the mutual fund industry is one of sort of these closet indexers that do these tiny over and underweights, which is fantastic for the manager. It reduces career risk, but in a world of zero fees, if you're going to be different, you better be pretty different. Otherwise, it doesn't move the needle. And certainly you guys, and and I think large extent, our funds do end up being pretty weird and different for better or for worse. You have to be, because how else do you stand out? The reality is, I forget who it was, some hedge fund manager many, many years ago in some letter said, there's only two assets. There's those that benefit from low volatility and those that benefit from high volatility. That's it. And most of the world is run on risk on assets, but that means everybody's competing based on fees then, because everything is ultimately some variation of beta. So you've got to be able to stand out in some way, shape, or form if you're trying to build a business and legitimately offer true diversification to investors. I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me to talk to advisors, for example, who say they're diversified. One of the things I used to always ask on the road when I was talking one-on-one to advisors is, well, tell me about a portion of your portfolio that you hate. I don't hate any portion of my portfolio. Well, then there's no way in hell you're diversified, right? Because what are you going to hate? You're going to hate the thing which is not performing well. So the very definition of diversification is you have to have different things that react differently to a lot of different kind of future paths. Most things react off of just one path up and to the right. What we're trying to do with the mutual fund and ETF, it's offer is something that reacts to a very different kind of path. And last year was that path of risk on, risk off. Most people don't hate anything because they sell what's underperforming and rinse repeat. (laughs) They just buy what they wish they had bought. And that's why a lot of people really struggle. We often say you should really be most interested in the things that are doing poorly last few years. How are we looking as 2021 starts? What's lumber? 
gold, utes, what are they all up to? The common thread across utilities, lumber, gold, treasuries, all these triggers is they're all related to interest rates, which means at the end of the day, they're all related to one thing and one thing only, the question of inflation or deflation. And I've made this point a lot that risk on risk off is really just code for inflation, deflation. Because if you think about the way these signals react, and again, the quantitative implications of their relative strength in terms of what it means for volatility, under what conditions are utilities strong risk off? disinflation, deflation. Under what conditions is the yield curve flattening? Disinflation, deflation. Under what conditions is lumber to gold weak? Disinflation, deflation. Under what conditions is it the opposite? It's reflation. If you had the mindset that risk on, risk off is just a way of identifying inflation, deflation conditions, I don't see how this year is going to be a smooth ride because without being overly dramatic, I can make the case that the only question that matters for many years to come is inflation or deflation because of the sheer amount of unrelenting debt there is in the system, which is not slowing down. One of my most popular tweets on at Lead Lag Report, which people just seem to kind of gravitate towards is, if debt doesn't matter, why am I paying taxes? Because our political leaders don't seem to care about the trajectory of liabilities. And because they don't seem to care, that question of inflation deflation seems to be more important than ever before, which means that these signals probably have less false positives and that there's more volatility and more path swings right, in this dynamic of equities to treasuries. I don't think the volatility is over by a long shot. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to have volatility like we saw last year, but to make the case that we're just going to reenter this unrelentingly smooth bull market, to me, it doesn't make much sense, no matter how much Fed manipulation there is, because the human mind is very bad at anticipating how long something takes and how much it will cost. Just think about it, home construction. It's always more expensive and takes longer than any estimates are. Whether it's COVID or anything else, with the way debt's acting and the way these policies are coming out, the problems that we have are going to take much longer to fix and will be much more expensive to fix, which means inflation, deflation means more swings, means these triggers probably are more important than ever before. You could still have a very strong up year. And I do think the Fed probably will get its wish in terms of inflation running hot, not because of anything they're doing. I think they're going to get it because the cycle probably starts to favor commodities and emerging markets alongside that finally, after a prolonged period of underperformance against equities and not doing much. Maybe that's sparked by infrastructure spend. Maybe that's just a function of time, the cure to low prices, low price, that kind of an argument. But if you get commodities running this year as a form of cost push inflation, that's going to push inflation expectations even more vertical than they've already been. That on the surface will be bullish for equities up to a point, which means you probably see bonds weaken pretty meaningfully in what could be a mania phase around the reflation narrative. At some point that gets overdone, and that's when risk off hits again. Again, I go back to, I think if anybody thinks that it's going to be an easy year, I got another 27 trillion to lend to you. While we're on this broad topic of volatility, you wrote another paper about the VIX, which I think won another award. They're going to have to start naming the Dow or the name award, the Guyette Award, because you've taken a few trophies. Hopefully, there's some monetary payment. I don't know if there is, but hopefully you get some cash or at least some trophies out of it. Talk to me a little bit about volatility in the VIX. How do you think about it? What's a useful construct included in our models? We should define what the VIX really is. So a lot of people say the VIX is the fear index. I've always taken issue with that idea because to me, volatility is not fear, it's doubt. It's doubt about where prices should be expressed by multiple market participants at once. Price should be here, should be there, should be here. That's what causes variations in price movement. It's that doubt about the always uncertain future, but maybe the reminder that the uncertain future is uncertain. Now, in that 2020 Founders Award paper, even though it's different than the other signals and papers, because the other signals, utilities, treasuries, lumber, gold, are meant to be anticipatory of conditions that favor the accident, the VIX paper says, well, what do you do when the accident's already taken place? Which means rather than trying to get ahead of a VIX spike, it's reacting off of a VIX spike. The finding there is historically, when you're below a VIX level, it's called 12 and a half or so, the best thing to do from a sector allocation perspective is to overweight low beta defensive areas, which is counter to the way most people invest in low volatility regimes, Why? Because in low volatility regimes where the VIX is low, the market keeps going higher and you want to take more risk because volatility is low. So you lever up, you take on more high beta, take on more cyclicals. The approach to the papers do the opposite. And the reason that the paper does the opposite is it goes back to that idea that you don't know the mile mark, you might crash your car. You don't know when the VIX spike happens. 
So if you're defensively positioned in low beta sectors like utilities, staples, and healthcare, in advance of an unknowable VIX spike in terms of when it happens, you're already prepared for it. So that means you end up lagging on the upside from a sector allocation perspective in those low VIX regimes. But then when the VIX spikes to 31, 32, you get those top decile type VIX moves, that's when you'd go very aggressively, reduce your low beta sector exposure, and then go very heavily into cyclicals or high beta sectors. Basically, just a variation of buy low, sell high. Because when the VIX is very high, that's when you'd actually want to get very aggressive. And it still goes back to this up capture, down capture idea. The strategies all in that paper using VIX levels for sector allocation outperform a buy and hold of the S&P. It does so, again, with the up capture being less than 100%, meaning you're lagging on the upside because you're in those defensive sectors. And then you're going aggressive after the decline has already happened. It goes back to the up capture, down capture being the key to performance. And it's interesting, right? Because VIX spikes, it's all related because VIX spikes tend to occur when you're below the 200-day moving average, when utilities are performing, when lumber to gold is weak. It's all the same idea. It's just executing in a different way. The common thread to the other papers remains this idea that if you want to kill it in the stock market, you have to not get killed, which means you have to play defense in advance of what that accident might look like. And even going back to the driving analogy, right? When people are rubbernecking and they see an accident, there's a lot of traffic. Suddenly when you're over that pump and you're no longer seeing the accident, the road's free and clear. You can speed up as much as you want. You got to wait for the moment. The problem with that paper, I think though, is that as you know, VIX spikes are relatively few and far between. So you have to wait. And that means you could be underperforming in defensive areas for a long periods of time, waiting for that VIX spike to ultimately buy low and get more aggressive in. I love your analogy about doubt because this year was such a good example. What did the VIX hit in March, like 80 or something? It is certainly felt like the zombie apocalypse and still does, I guess. But the challenge of thinking in terms of putting money to work when the VIX is at 60 and 80 and people are dropping dead, it's a hard thing to do, which is the challenge, of course. But it's also, but in many ways, it's also, I'd argue, the only thing to do. This is one of the arguments I was making in the midst of everything collapsing in March. I was, I was doing a segment on Bloomberg, and I was basically saying, look, if this whole thing is the end of the world, your money's worthless anyway. You might as well just buy guns and butter. It's the same argument you could have made in February of 2009. when I remember very vividly, I had a conversation with a former investor of that small hedge fund I was running saying, you know, well, should I short the S&P? The S&P is pushing a 666. It's like, what's the point? The whole system is going to collapse. You might as well start betting on the other direction. And I started really kind of honing on this point. It's more than just being contrarian. The future is unknowable. It's always unknowable. But the likelihood of a payout being higher or lower is knowable, meaning, and I've used this line on Twitter quite a bit, opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. So here we are in the midst of the pandemic and COVID. I remember very vividly, aside from toilet paper being running out all over the place, you would turn on Netflix and the top trending movies were Walking Dead, all kinds of like apocalyptic movies. Everyone started thinking like it's Hollywood. Everyone started believing they knew the future. I mean, yes, it could have turned out much worse, but the reality is the payout's higher when nobody else is betting on the opposite end. So I think it'll be fascinating with hindsight for real psychologists to look back at what we went through in 2020 to sort of identify all these heuristics, all these behavioral biases, the availability heuristic that Hollywood gave us around end of the world with COVID, the notion that we can know based on a few samples where the N is low, right, in your sample size, that we know that how this is going to play out. It's really remarkable how it played out. And, and you know, obviously, the Fed came in aggressively, as everyone expected them to. I think that's where the next pandemic is. It's in our financial system, right, with the sheer amount of leverage in the system. But it's remarkable, really, to kind of look back and see how people behaved during that period, convinced that they knew an unknowable future. We've talked a lot about defense, positioning, all that sort of ideas, volatility. You have a paper that talks about the opposite, which is when to jam the gas pedal. What do you think about leverage? Any general takeaways? This is a question we get a lot from investors. Should I be laying down the hammer? The 2016 Dow Award paper is titled Leverage for the Long Run. The point of that paper was to document when do you want to leverage? Let's take a step back. Most people love leverage in bull market. They hate it in a bear market. Makes sense because you're just magnifying your gains and your losses. And most people, when they think about leverage, they think about LTCM. They think about housing crisis. They think about all kinds of other, even the 29, 30s depression. Your mind goes to the extremes as far as the negative effects of leverage. 
But leverage can actually be really quite positive as long as you know when to use it. It goes back to conditions. So the point of the 2016 Dow War paper was to document this idea that you want leverage when you have streaks in day-to-day performance of the stock market, meaning two consecutive updates, three consecutive updates, four consecutive updates. You don't want leverage when volatility is high and you have this kind of seesaw, big up, big down, big up, big down, big up, big down type of environment. That's what's called the constant leverage trap that you get stuck where you're kind of relevering at the wrong time. You're levering up when the market goes up, and then you're actually delevering. You're deleveraging because your, your gross multiplier is the same at a lower level. You want leverage when you have streaks. Streaks tend to happen in low volatility regimes. So it goes back to conditions. Typically, volatility is higher when utilities are strong, treasuries are strong, lumber to gold is weak, and even based on your own work, and that's alluded to in the paper as well, it's around moving averages. When you're below a 200-day moving average, you tend to have more seesaw behavior, less consecutive updates. So if you're leveraging above a moving average and you're deleveraging below moving average, irrespective, by the way, of whether it's the S&P or junk debt or other asset classes, any kind of asset class that trends has this dynamic of underreaction on the upside, overreaction on the downside, then the leverage actually is quite beneficial. But you have to be able to tactically use it. And you have to also be very careful in terms of how much to use because while more often than not, you will be in low volatility regimes above a moving average. The problem is if you're in a false signal above the moving average, meaning the market collapses suddenly, and your multiple is say 3x the market, now you've got the risk of ruin in that kind of a juncture. So there's this kind of balance between how much leverage to use, not just when to use it. Now, the mutual fund, the ATAC rotation fund purposely levers risk on inequities, large, small, emerging. The ATAC US rotation ETF RORO purposely also leverages 1.3x risk on when it's in equities. The reason that I'm a fan of leverage when you're risk on and you're tactical is you will naturally be wrong playing risk off using your signals. You'll be in treasuries, you'll be out of the market. So your up capture by definition will be less than 100%. You'll be lagging the market because you will be wrong along the way as the market's going higher. The only way to ameliorate that is by leveraging a little bit when in equities, when risk on. So if you're doing it tactically, it makes a lot of sense. Leverage is not a dirty word when it comes to markets. It's, it becomes problematic when people hold onto it, not recognizing the environments under which they're deploying that leverage. And do you guys tend to do that through margin, through leverage ETFs, through futures? What's the exposure? Options? With the mutual fund and the ETF, it's through the levered ETFs. And the mutual fund, I had to use a credit line. I'll probably be reintroducing that. And this is actually where there's, I think, a misconception. People say that these leverage ETFs degrade over time. There's this decay that naturally happens. That's not true. Certainly not true for the levered long ETFs. And you can argue it's more true for the short, but shorting is the mile marker. You know, it will crash the car and that's very hard to predict. That's why I'm not a fan of shorting. So it's using leverage ETFs. And when you're doing it quickly and tactically enough, you don't really sort of veer that much dramatically over time. And there's no real decay. Actually, the daily reset helps you because again, you get those consecutive streaks in low vol regimes. How do most people advisors, individuals utilize these two funds would be that they take one of two approaches. One is they use them as almost like a Lego for part of their U.S. stock exposure, where they'll just take some out, put this fund in as a way to have a little tactical exposure. Otherwise, I imagine they just throw it in this sort of weird alt bucket that everyone seems to have that they hope doesn't really correlate to the rest of the stuff going on. Is that accurate? They use it other ways? Is there a main sort of way that people incorporate these? I think more in that sort of satellite of a core satellite, more of that alt bucket. More and more advisors, it's really intriguing, right? Because look, why do you own bonds? You own bonds because you own stocks. When you think about a 60-40 portfolio, bonds are meant to be your ballast when stocks go down. Well, the problem is bonds now don't give you that wiggle room. There's very little room for error and bonds are not going to protect on the downside because yields are so low. So what has happened is there's, I think, a broader movement in the investment advisor community to look for replacements or substitutes to the bond portion to try to cushion when stocks go down. So what ends up happening is a lot of advisors take away from their fixed income, that 40, and they allocate more towards alternative strategies. And that's why probably you see ongoing demand in things like ATAC or things like gold or even Bitcoin, because the world is not just hungry for equities. The world is hungry for things which are not bonds. So it was kind of an interesting kind of dynamic when you think about sort of these kind of macro trends that we're seeing in terms of some of these uncorrelated assets like that. Look, diversification used to be about asset class. I think increasingly people are realizing it's more about strategies as opposed to asset class. So to diversify when you have yields this low, you have to do it beyond just sort of your 
traditional construct from an MPT standpoint, you have to do it more towards anomaly-based approaches. And oftentimes those anomalies are the ones that failed for several years, which goes back to he was first shall be last and last first by the laggards means also by the anomalies, which seemingly haven't existed for a while. You've put out a lot of content. What are you thinking about these days? What are you working on? What's on the brain as we look to the horizon of this next decade? Any other ideas and concepts that you've been working on? At some point, we'll probably work on some kind of tactical fixed income rotational strategy. I think there's demand for something that rotates based on credit risk. And it's all consistent still with the papers because there's a strong correlation between credit spread widening and VIX spikes. Well, if utilities, treasuries, lumber to gold get ahead of those, then by definition, you can probably get ahead of those credit spread widening events as well. I know you've done a lot of these tests yourself. The reality is there are very few true leading indicators in markets. We often hear people talk about equities and talk about why stocks are going up or down. But when you actually test what they're saying quantitatively, there's pretty much nothing to it. Just people say things with confidence, but when you actually test it, there's no validity to it. There are very few things that have any kind of anticipatory power. My argument is that the most powerful anticipatory signals are those that are related to what drives capitalism, the cost of capital, interest rates, the demand for money. Now, you can say, well, the Fed has broken that. Okay, that's partially true. But if the Fed keeps breaking that, I think we have much bigger problems to worry about than whether a particular fund is risk on or risk off, because there's other implications on society if you break the incentive mechanism of interest rates. So I think probably something around the fixed income side, keep on focusing on volatility as a broader cycle that I think we're in. And it's fascinating to me, you know, Greenspan wrote The Age of Turbulence. He used that title purposely because every age of turbulence is preceded by an age of moderation. And when you have debt as high as it is, that turbulence doesn't take much to kind of get us there. I imagine people listening to this, they probably say, Michael, love these papers, these individual funds. Why not wrap them into a multi-strap fund? Why not give me all the goods in one? So maybe there's a sleeve, one quarter, which is based on this and one quarter based on that, one quarter based on that. You guys ever thought about doing that? I think that might be in the near future. I've had the unfortunate series of events of launching a risk on risk off strategy at the wrong time. And when you're small and you're bootstrapping, it's hard to really do everything you want to do. Put all your ideas and put them in these different wrappers for people to invest in them. So I start end of 2012. Here comes pure risk on. This ATAC rotation mutual fund really never really did anything too dramatic up until last year. Finally had my war story. The assets have ballooned quite substantially. Now there's more resources. Now I want to launch a whole bunch of strategies. The bet is, is the cycle going to favor more of these swings? As long as the cycle favors more of these swings, I have more of an opportunity to really use those resources and create more products. You've got to be diversified in terms of signals. And I think that's kind of an important thing too. Diversification is not just risk on, risk off. It's about the path and timing of that risk on, risk off. And I think that'll probably be coming. The challenge is if you re-enter this, again, this passive large cap only world, I think everybody in this industry is in a lot of trouble. Because increasingly, people are not looking towards financial advisors, they're doing it themselves. Increasingly, people are just taking excess concentration risk in their stock trades, in their market cap weighted S&P large cap positions. I think it's coming. It'll be more likely if the environment continues to be rocky, which I certainly hope it will be. You touched on a couple of interesting points there. The first being is that we have a lot of people that always email us, advisors, et cetera, each week say, hey, what do you think about this idea? You should launch this fund, to which my response is usually, sure, you seed it with 100 million. We're happy to. (laughs) The challenge of our world, of course, is that many of these ideas, it's like the field of dreams. We all think they're brilliant, but if no one else does, then you got to spend a little time subsidizing and letting them marinate. But the nice part about launching at the wrong time, I think it's actually good for the long term. And the reason being is that people get to see the bad before the good. The use case eventually happen. And as we know, so many of the fund managers out there, I saw a stat the other day from Morningstar that said on average, over the prior decade, almost half of mutual funds don't survive. They either get merged or they close down because of lots of reasons, but poor performance or the advisors are just unwilling to commit to a cycle. So surviving through the down cycle, then having your moment like last year to me is while more painful (laughs) and more challenging is a testament to the strategy. I think that gives often more confidence of the real world of how you have both sides. I love that you said that because one of the questions I'm sure you get these too is under what environment does your approach not work? I lived it. 
I'm the first one to say I went through the desert for a long time. And yeah, look, you can't get the gold without the dragon. You got to kind of go through these difficult periods and survive long enough to get past that. And I think you're right. When you kind of go through the desert early on, first of all, you end up knowing who your true core investors are, right? Those that really understand the concept because they'll stick through it even when the cycle doesn't favor the approach. But then if you stick it out long enough, a cycle will come to you. Can't tell you how many people over the years said, why don't you change your signals or change your strategy? You can't chase the cycle. You can't keep on optimizing. You can't chase optimization. That doesn't really work over long periods of time. You have to wait for the cycle to come to you. But to your point, it's very painful. I spent years every week on the road presenting. I was a one-man wholesaler, PM analyst, the whole thing for a long time because I was trying to build a ship in what was a storm for risk on, risk off, even though it was a bull market, it was a storm for me in that strategy. And it's hard because it's interesting, right? From a business perspective, there's a fine line between knowing sunk cost fallacy or if you're selling the low, meaning you put all this time and money and effort into building some product, some mutual fund, some ETF in our world. And the thing is just not working for years and it's not getting traction. And people look at you like you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? You don't know anything about markets because your funds are not performing well. And you say to yourself, well, should you give up on it? And you wrestle with that every day. And I don't think investors, talking from a business perspective, appreciate that mental back and forth that as a portfolio manager, you have as somebody who's building a strategy, creating it and putting it out there in the public and really kind of putting your IP for the world to see. You keep the faith, you know your strategy, you know the history, try to just survive long enough. And at some point, something hits, you don't know when, but when it hits, now you're thriving, you're out of the survival mode. And I know our friend, Mike Venuto, stole that from you, this idea that surviving is everything. My father, whenever somebody would ask him, how are you doing today? So, you know, I'm surviving. I think that's a good mindset when it comes to anything in life. While you mentioned Venuto, I was chatting with him about topics and one of his bullet points was your music. And I don't know what that means. Does it mean your music taste? Do you play the guitar recorder or what's the reference? I play guitar on Twitter. I put out some tracks. It's really amazing. So this is like back in college. I had these like old songs I'd play on my acoustic guitar. And it's like 20 years later, it's like, all right, well, let me see if I can actually get them produced. And I found these websites. It's actually remarkable. You can send these very raw acoustic sounding, poorly recorded tracks, and you can get musicians from anywhere in the world. I've had an acoustic guitar player from Brazil do a recreation of one of my songs. So I kind of like these old tracks redone professionally, all online with me not going into a single studio, just sending out these old versions of songs that I used to write. It's fun for me. I think it's good to have a creative outlet. I think there is something to the idea of not just always being so serious and talking about markets and try to have fun. For me, music is sort of my outlet, my creativity. I'll have to talk to Venuto about him telling you, <laughs> sharing that with you. Send me some links. We'll put them in the show notes and everyone can subscribe to your new SoundCloud DJ Gaed channel. The quote unquote band name I had made for myself when this is when I was still in college for all that music was Fortunate Fall, Felix Culpa. And I always kind of loved that concept because it kind of goes back to even the way things played out last year for the ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund. Here comes this incredible collapse in equities. And it ended up being the most fortunate fall for me personally because it gave me the war story for the mutual fund and for this risk on risk off approach. So it's funny how life comes full circle sometimes. What's been your most memorable investment, most memorable trade over your career? Good, bad, in between. Remember when XIV blew up? Short VIX ETN? So I did all kinds of tests. I've done all kinds of tests. You really want to use these signals. The real way to do it is not necessarily to go aggressive risk on in equities. It's actually to short vol and play that time premium. The problem is if your signal is wrong and misses the decline. So I was, for a portion of my own personal portfolio, risk on XIV, a shorting vol, the day that the XIV blew up, when you had that VIX spike in, in I think it was February 18. It was a painful reminder that just because it's raining doesn't mean you're going to crash, and just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't when it comes to playing something like that. So for me, a memorable investment is the one that was the costliest. But that's okay. It's cost of tuition. What was this year like? Was it sort of a easy period as you guys had such a strong year? Was it kind of smooth sailing or was it pretty emotionally difficult to make this year? I know, look, I know the signal the signals were quants, but inside were a bowl of soup of hormones and emotions. What was it like? It was wildly nerve wracking. As much as I was making the case for risk on end of March and the signals flipping around then, I was incredibly nervous flipping out of treasuries, going all into equities, and it still looked like the world was ending. I was all kinds of nervous flipping from risk off 
to risk on the Friday of election week and having this kind of rip rally that we've seen, especially in, in some of these smaller campaigns. That's thing about quantitative strategy. The appeal of it is that you're unemotional, but you're still executing, which means you yourself will still be emotional in those types of signals because you start questioning your signals. I know you know this firsthand. The real challenge for me was how do you get people to be aware of this fund when there's so much noise and concern about people investing in anything following COVID? Right now, it's a different story. Everyone now is rolled up with everything in new eyes. But me, I basically did a self-imposed boiler room where I was just calling up every single advisor I've ever met over the years, every single LinkedIn connection and just saying, listen, you know, take a look at this. This is my moment. This, you can see it. I joke with Venuto, it was the greatest comeback since Lazarus because anybody looking at the mutual fund prior to last year would say, well, you know, it's not that interesting. But again, I never had the risk off war story and here it comes, but just because it's there doesn't mean that you can stop. So for me, the real drain was also just around the sheer amount of insane work I was doing to kind of shout it at the top of the mountaintop, look, this is what I've been talking about for years. Look at the papers. They all got ahead of it. Look at the lead lag report. I'll tell you, that was exhausting. As you know, right, you're doing 10, 15 calls with advisors every single day. I got to tell you, I have so much more respect for Broadway actors than I've ever had before because- when you're acting and you're and you're t- doing a pitch, you're saying the same thing over and over again, and you have to do it with the same amount of enthusiasm every time to every advisor. And come 4.30, I don't want to be talking about how great the ATAC Rotation Mutual Fund or ATAC US Rotation ETF is, but that's what you have to do to survive. You have to keep pushing. You got to keep pressuring that ball. While it was a very good year, it was just extremely busy. And I'm very thankful, obviously. I'm not happy with the way it happened. Obviously, a lot of people suffered through it, but it is what it is. I mean, these things happen. That's markets. And I think it's a great reminder. I don't really want to say it's a good lesson because most people that have studied history or been through a few cycles should be fully cognizant that a 2020 is totally normal or possible. And so it's a reminder, I think, that so many of the traditional buy and hold portfolios that we see, they're so highly correlated to GDP, what's going on in the world, and your own human capital. So not having other things, something like y'all strategies, as well as other types of ideas out there. It's a reminder that you end up having all your investments correlated to what's going on in the world. And when the world is going to hell in a handbasket, what's the point of having a portfolio that does the same? So I think hopefully a lot of people relearn that lesson this year or had a good reminder, because as you alluded to earlier, the future is, of course, unknowable. Although I don't know, people's attention spans are only getting shorter, which is a whole nother topic for another day. That's like, why are vines six seconds? Because people don't have the attention for listening all the way through or watching something all the way through. So while it was a painful reminder that diversification matters and diversification of things outside of beta matters, in the midst of that first half, I don't think anybody seems to now worry about diversification again. Everyone just wants the thing which is going up the fastest. Everybody wants the up capture. But again, it goes back to the down capture is everything. The problem is most people only realize that when it's too late. Michael, if people want to find out info on Roro, ATAC, Lead Lag, where do they go? On the funds, it's ATAC, ATACfunds.com. ATAC just stands for ATACTICAL. On the lead lag report, it's leadlagreport.com. On Twitter, at leadlagreport. Uh, like, you know, out there quite a bit on social media, so not too hard to find. And, and then, of course, Toroso is the advisor. Feel free to check us out. We do more than just these funds. We also do the blockchain ETF, gig economy ETF, and kind of more sort of thematic type of ETF investments. I got to tell you, I moved my fund over from a prior RAA. May 1st was the effective date to Toroso. And with hindsight, what incredible timing to bring this strategy to a much larger shop with a very strong team, something I'm very lucky to to live through. We didn't even alluded to what's going on in the crypto world a few times. Before I let you go, any final thoughts on that space? Imagine you have a few. Path matters more than trend. You know that crypto can have some enormous drawdowns. The issue for me is it goes back to the futures unknowable. Yeah, maybe Bitcoin does go to 100,000 or a million. But it goes it also go back down substantially and then go back up again. And then the question is, yeah, okay, there'll be a bunch of these people that quote unquote hodl their cryptocurrency. Look, I think there's demand there because again, people the world is hungry for alternatives to bonds. 
I don't know where it ends up being. All I know is that it probably makes sense as a portion of a portfolio, because again, it's a diversifier, but be careful of those big declines, because I don't think Bitcoin is a play on the skew of up capture, down capture. I think that's a pure up capture play. Michael, this has been so much fun. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.